Good morning, Redemption. Good to see everybody here. Open your Bibles if you would. Let's get after it. Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Last week I was at the uh, 710 retreat, which is our college kind of career uh, ministry. We had double the amount of folks go with us. Some of you were here. That's great. We had a wonderful time. Um, God's doing some great stuff. There's a, there's a good future to what God's bringing to our church, so I'm excited about that. So I love that, but I love being here too. And we're picking up a section of scripture, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, these next three chapters, uh, we are, some have called this section really challenging. Uh, so much so that uh, if you pick up several commentaries or listen to preachers or churches, they will skip this section that we're about to go into. 9, 10, and 11 is, is probably the most avoided section that I, I know of in the scriptures. They'll preach all the way through 8 and then hop over and find themselves in 12. And we're not going to do that. We're going to go through this together. Um, let me give you a couple reasons why they do that. One is because it's difficult at first read to understand its place, its context. Um, it seems so abrupt and such a left turn for Paul as he's been talking through the gospel. That's really the essence of the first eight chapters. This wonderful story called the gospel starts with the bad news that the sin is so great and God's feeling about the sin is even greater. He has wrath stored up for sinners and all are sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's where Romans starts. And as we've weaved our way through these eight chapters, we've discovered that God makes a way for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And by faith, only by faith, you can find yourself free from the condemnation of sin. That's where we ended up in Romans chapter 8, right? Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's an unbelievable truth. That's how great the, the redemption of Christ is for people who confess him. The end of chapter 8, we start to see all the work that God's doing for us as his people. Um, he will finish what he started. Total and complete transformation is where he's taken us. And kind of the last couple of weeks as we unpack this, we saw that in the meantime, in the meantime between now and completion, all of the self-perpetuated sins and the way we hurt ourselves and other people, our horrible story still doesn't make God tap out on us. That he, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Nothing. Not your worst day. Not your best day. It doesn't matter what it is. Faith in Christ alone saves you. And God will complete that, that salvation one day. No separation is where we ended it. So that's a wonderful, complete thought. Chapters 9 through 11 seems like this an abrupt change in what Paul's been talking about. It almost seems like a, a parenthesis thought. It's almost as if you could take those three chapters out and just let chapter 12 come alongside chapter 8. It would sound like every other Pauline epistle. He talks doctrine and theology. He tells us how we are Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then he jumps into this practical theology thing, how, do we, how we're supposed to live or the so what to it. Almost every epistle he does that except for here in uh, chapters 9 through 11. And so some would avoid it simply because they go, I don't know how it fits in the logical uh, linear thought of Paul. Let's just avoid it. More, more often than not, though, people avoid this section of Scripture because it deals with really controversial issues. In fact, James, James Boyce says it contains profound, mind-stretching mind material. Um, it deals with things like election and predestination and God choosing for himself a people. And it talks about Israel, why Israel won't believe. And it talks about God grafting Israel back in. There's a lot of complex thoughts in here. And one just blush at the first, or these three chapters may, might make you think, well, maybe, maybe it, I'm not certain I know how it fits. Um, some of you I've, I've bumped into uh, walking around here in the last couple of months who have told me, hey, I'm really excited about nine, chapter 9 coming up. 
You know, I asked the last hour, and one guy went, woo And so there's one guy at, at 9.30 who's excited about chapter 9. But some of you might have stopped me and said, I'm really looking forward to it, or I've got some questions, I need them, I need them answered. And, and to you, maybe, maybe chapters 9 through 11 is like the rich waters that you're looking to feed your thirsty soul. It's everything to you. And to some of you, you don't know anything about it. You're going to discover some things some of you have, and you're bothered by it or offended by it, or you wonder if it's, uh, how, how it's uh, been depicted. So there's some challenges in it. I, I want just to state up front, our job my job, every time I sit down to open the Bible, I pray like crazy. God, don't let me screw this up. Your word's too important. I, I, there are far brighter men than me. So I ride on a lot of shoulders when I study this stuff. But I ask God, God, help me say what you said and help us do what you said to do. I don't care about anything else. I really don't. And I, I think that's the challenge of any listener. When somebody sits down, like you are now, to hear somebody preaching, you should ask the same questions that I do when I start studying on Wednesday is, is God, help me understand what you said. Help me do what you said to do. That's the only uh, thing that we have to consider. But, but just to kind of put some, I don't know, emergency to it, some energy to it, there, there, is a, there is a place that we're at in our world. We're dealing with what Paul would call sound teaching or doctrine or theology. It isn't sexy. And that, that's even too soft of a word. It's going to be rejected. Now, Paul told, training a young pastor named Timothy, told Timothy, hey, there's a day coming. You need to get ready for this, Timothy. People aren't going to put up with big things about God because they're inclined to want to listen to the things they already think they know. They want, in essence, their ears tickled. In fact, he said it this way, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for a time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and they'll turn away from listening to the truth to wander off to myths. I, I, I suppose I don't have to tell you that's where we're at today. This is not a how-to sermon. The next three months are not how-to sermons. They are big things about what God has done and declared and will do, period. It is God letting people get close to maybe the mystery of what he's got in mind, okay? So it, it requires everything that we can put to it. John Piper put it this way. He said, there is a sad irony that many seemingly Christian churches, the more you adjust to uh, obscure biblical doctrine in order to make Christianity uh, reality acceptable to unbelievers, the less Christian reality there is when they arrive. Or he goes on to say, if you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. That's not evangelism, that's deception. So here's what I know. Every one of us have to bring to um, this moment humility. Every time I open the word, I go, God, whatever you say, let me get it. And that, that's true for all of us. The number one attitude we bring to it is a broken heart, a, a humbleness to it. So I know that the word of God reveals who God is. I also know that we're completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to tell us what that means, right? So it makes sense if we stopped and asked for help right now. So let's do that together. Let's pray. God, you are sovereign. You are mighty. You are unfathomable. Uh, You're mysterious. And you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. God, we, know, we understand our limitations. But God, I, I pray that your spirit would uh, intervene in our time, that he would do the teaching, 
that he'd make these things come alive to us, that you would get bigger, your gospel would get greater, and we would love you more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, before we unpack the first five verses of chapter 9, I want to give you a reason why these three chapters fit in the context of Paul's writing. And it's going to be helpful every time we, get, we work through these next three chapters to know exactly why uh, Paul is doing what he's doing here. This isn't, as some have suggested, a parenthesis, or that some have suggested Paul had this message on, on Israel and where Israel fits, and he just had it lying around, and he kind of threw it in the middle of his Romans letter, and that's how he got it here. That's not his intention at all. In fact, I think it makes total sense what he's saying if we back up to the, the ending of chapter 8 and just catch it in theme. So if you would, uh, I want you to remember three questions that Paul asked with an obvious answer in the beginning of verse 37. Again, Back in 31 of chapter 8, Paul asked this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, he asked the second question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is, who is to condemn? That's the third question. The fourth question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer that we learned a couple weeks ago? Verse 37 starts with one word. What is it? No, nothing. Nobody. Nothing can capture us away from what God has already done and declared over people who confess him as Lord and Savior. Nothing can separate us. And so with that in mind, there is lurking in the background an assumed question that's hovering around if you're a Jewish reader listening to Paul declare all these wonderful promises that God is always going to deliver. No doubt whatsoever. It's the question of where does Israel fit in the story? If you're a Jewish reader and you're reading this, you know, God made promises before. Like, we're the people of promise. If God ever made a promise, he made stacks of them to us. And Paul declared that nothing can separate you from, G from, from a relationship of Jesus Christ. Nothing can take you from his hand. That is true and anchored. And he's assuming that somebody's going to go, okay, wait a minute. Can I count on that promise? Because he's made, he's made a promise to Israel. Can we, can we trust it? What about them? So we understand the promises were really originally given to the people of Israel. The Messiah came to the people of Israel. We understand from the first eight chapters that salvation is freely given to anyone who would believe. So explain this. How does Israel continue to resist the Messiah? Why won't they believe? Where, where does this all come together? And so chapter 9 and, and 10 and 11 are simply answering this question. Did God go back on his promise to Israel? That's where this fits in context. Did God's promise fail his people? If we're going to believe the last section of chapter 8, really believe, like on your worst day when you've blown it worse than you could ever dream and you're sitting there wondering, can this gospel be true? Can this gospel capture my greatest, most embarrassing sin? Can it capture me? Can I believe that nothing whatsoever can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ? If it's in doubt that God keeps all of his promises, how do you know to believe that one? Does that make sense? Do you understand now everything that he's going to say in chapters 9, 10, 11 is supporting the proof that God's a promise keeper. And he uses Israel and all the promises made to Israel to prove the point that we can trust that nothing can separate us from his love. Everyone with me? Okay? That's the context of chapters 9, 10, and 11. God's promises don't fail. That's what we're going to see. Let's read the first five verses. I've got a really simple outline in uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll get done on time today. No threat here. All right. Verse 1. 
Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are... They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise, and to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Three simple points, and I'm going to do things out of order based on the text, but the first one I want you to see is Israel has an extraordinary advantage. Israel has an extraordinary advantage. We're, we're going to see it in, in that section in verses 4 and 5 where Paul starts to unpack all the things that God has already proven himself faithful to, to Israel. All right? The unbelievable advantage. He mentions seven things here. Let me just pull them apart quickly so you can see, again, from his vantage point to the Israelis, the idea that this is a true thing that God has shown himself. He mentions adoption first. Do you see that in verse, in verse uh, 4? To them belong the adoption as sons. Now, this is a different adoption than what we've been talking about in the gospel. This, this adoption that we know is that God grafts sinners into his family and makes us sons and daughters of the king. He so works on us that he makes us holy and pure positionally before God as if we never sinned because he pours out all his wrath on our sin in Jesus. That's the adoption we know as Christians. The adoption that Paul is talking about specifically is referring to Israel as God's selected nation from which salvation to the world would come. That God has picked Israel and the people of Israel to communicate his ways and his redemption to a world. Even though they themselves don't see it clearly, they don't get the, the Messiah Redeemer, but he's decided to work uniquely through this people. They've been adopted as a nation. He mentions in, in, in verse 4 as well, glory. This simply is talking about this visible manifestation of God's presence around his people. You can't pick up any Old Testament story without seeing God show up in some tangible way. When uh, God's people were freed from Egypt and they're out in the desert, it was the glory, Shekinah glory, the cloud of God leading them to the promised land. It was the cloud of God that stood between them and the Egyptian armies to protect the people of God. When Moses went up on the mountain, it was the Shekinah cloud of glory of God that said that God was up there with Moses, Right? When the people of God traveled at night, it became a pillar of fire to lead them and give them light. A lot of, a lot of analogies in all of these presence of God. When the temple was built, it was the glory of God that hovered over the temple, over the Ark of the Covenant. Over and over again, you see this glory of God representing one thing. God came close to his people. And that uh, God was a visible sign that, that he was not just with them, but that he was for them. That's the glory of God that he talked about, Paul talks about, to the Jewish reader, saying, God did this, remember? You remember that, right? All these stories reveal that God came close. He also talks about the covenants. This is where God's special relationship really starts to stand out. God made a promise to Abraham, right? I'll make you a great nation. In his old age, with belief only, right? He believed and he was made right. He made the promise repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and even to David when he tells David, I'm going to I'm going to have a king sit on your throne and his kingdom will last forever, referring to Jesus. God made all these covenantal promises to make them a great nation and to have it endure. He talks about the, um, the law here in verse 4. Paul has been accused over and over again, simply even from just the writings of, of, of Romans, that uh, he has no regard for the law whatsoever. Now, he said many things that would give you that impression, but... but 
also in chapter 3 of Romans, he says, to what advantage is there being a Jew? And he says there are many advantages. One major one is you got all the oracles of God from, from that relationship. In other words, God's commandments, God's law were yours. He didn't give it to anybody else, just you, remember? He, he also talks about this worship um, is yours uniquely, Israel. God, he's the one who said, build the temple this way. Put the walls in here. Separate holiness from average. Make sure you understand blood sacrifice applied to sin. Make sure you understand all the holy days and non-holy days. Make sure you understand all the particulars because when it's all said and done, it speaks volumes about your problem, your sin, and God's provision. It has to. It paints the pictures to sinners that how they have to approach God. I got no hope. I got no covering. I got no shot without something else. And all of worship in Israel spoke of that. He says two more things that God also gave him the promises. And we know this specifically, God's referring, and they knew this, one day there's going to be a Redeemer, Messiah. To this day, they're still looking for him. But they believe that promise, that God is going to deliver on a rescuer, a savior. And then ultimately, he finishes here with the patriarchs, referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men who'd spent time with God, where God revealed himself in special ways, and Israel would read these things and go, yeah, that's right. Very, very special things we have from God for us. In fact, there was, I read this in one commentary. I didn't read it in the other services, so you're special. You get this. Um, there was a well-known story about Benjamin Disraeli, the conservative statesman who served as prime minister in England in the late 1800s, Okay. He was elected to Parliament at age 33, and shortly thereafter was attacked by Daniel O'Connell, an Irish Roman Catholic leader. In the course of his unrestrained invective, O'Connell referred to Disraeli's Jewish ancestry. Disraeli replied, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am a Jew. And I remind my illustrious opponent that when the ancestors of my right and honorable gentlemen were brutal savages eating nuts in the German forest... My ancestors were serving as priests in the Temple of Solomon and giving the law and religion to the world. I thought that was hysterical. Um, they have advantages. And that's all Paul's trying to say here in this passage, that God has said, God has done, God has revealed to a specific group of people. So if you're reading this thinking that you can't trust, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, that maybe the promises aren't secure because Israel doesn't get Jesus yet, Know this, that God has already done amazing things for his people. So Paul responds to all this doubt with a history lesson of God's relationship and God's advantages to his people and all the things that he's done. And I think with that kind of on his heart, he starts to emote. Paul starts to feel. Now, I, I've described Paul, I don't know if this is accurate, but I like it. I, I describe Paul as the Mike Ditka of theology. Um, in other words, if he feels it, he's going to do it. If he's, if he's upset, he'll have no problem telling you. If he wants to correct something, he'll have no problem doing that. And if he feels something deeply, he'll cry. Paul is in one of those moments right now where his heart is breaking for his people. The Hebrews. His heart is torn. And that's where we see this extraordinary feeling of Paul in verses 1 through 3. Let's read it again and I'll make a couple of points. I'm Speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul starts out um, 
with an oath. Seems odd. He swears by his relationship with Christ that what he's saying is true. And that makes sense because people who hear Paul thinks, you know, that he's an enemy. Um, they, they think he's turned his back on his people. In fact, he's put down everything they stand for. And uh, so Paul has to convince them. And he uses an oath to, in Christ's name to prove his sincerity, that he really does feel for them. He loves them. He swears by his relationship with Christ. Now, I'm just going to confess something here. That, to me, is so unbelievable. And maybe it's unique to me. Well, maybe it's not, because I met a couple people last hour who confessed to the same problem I have. But I, by instinct, and, and I, I do this reluctantly so you don't hold it against me later, okay? I, by instinct, I'm a hater. I don't say that with my, any, any pride whatsoever, but I do blame my mother, okay? So, you, you know. My mom's a badger. She's defensive. Um, she's strong. She's this big, too, by the way. But you don't cross mom. You don't cross mom because if you do, you go in a file. You understand? And if, you, if she ever needs that information, she'll use it on you. Uh, mom was, she is still strong to this day, but she's pretty rigid. I think I inherited that. In other words, what I mean by that is I, I, I can live with a whole bunch of enemies. I don't say that with any pride. It just happens. Like, okay, they go here in my mind. I don't know if you can relate to this. So once I determine that there are reasons to avoid or reasons to sus suspect bad intentions, I get protective right away. Hopefully this makes sense. This is what makes what Paul says to me so unbelievable because Paul is writing this to people who want to kill him. It is not humanly natural to say, I would give up my own eternal destiny for the sake of people who want nothing more than to kill me. Paul clearly isn't a hater. And uh, he, is, uh, he is in love with his people. But Paul is uh, considered at this point a blasphemer. Although at one time he was one of them. He would say of himself in Philippians 3, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And so in other words, what Paul says here, by, by heritage, by bloodline, by behavior, by passion, I, I was a Jew. I was the example. I was the preeminent example of what it was to be one of you. And somewhere in, in Paul's life, walking down a road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? The risen Lord, the Messiah, the Redeemer, reveals himself to Paul. And Paul, all of what Paul thought he knew gets blown up in a second. And I think immediately he had the biggest lesson any man ever had of theology. He went back immediately to all that Old Testament stuff about a redeemer, about a covering, about a Passover, about blood, about sacrifices, and it dawned on him that Jesus is all of that. All of it. Paul comes to his senses about Christ. He starts to blow up everything he used to confess and believe for and defend. We've seen it in Romans in just the last several months. He, he, he says the law won't get it. If you're trying to construct for yourself a ladder of morality to climb your way to a God to merit his favor. I don't care what law you pick, you're not getting there. And to the Hebrew people who thought they had the law, it doesn't get it. There isn't any version of obedience that can merit God's favor. In fact, no one is righteous, not even one, not even a Pharisee. You're released from the law, he said. 
being Jewish doesn't mean you're the children of God or that the, God, the promises of God apply to you anymore. To a Jewish listener, everything he said was blasphemy, right? He was public enemy number one. Paul was. He was considered a traitor. And everywhere he went, he told everybody about Jesus. He made converts. He planted churches of people just like him. And the Jewish audience, all they wanted to do was to get rid of that. So they made life difficult for him and the church everywhere, everywhere they went. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten and one time I was stoned. Paul was paying for this gospel. They were resisting everything that he said. He was considered a, a blasphemer, a traitor. But this is kind of the twisted part. As bad as it is, I can understand how the Jews felt about Paul. I struggle to understand how Paul could love them like he did. So that's the second thing I want you to notice here is that Paul was willing to be damned for their salvation. How does that feel? And Paul said, I, I, I would be accursed if I could. It, the word accursed is the word anathema. It's the same word that Paul used in Galatians when Paul was defending the gospel of Christ alone by faith alone, the grace alone. When these false teachers came into the church in Galatia and suggested, no, it wasn't just Jesus, add a little bit of work to it. And Paul writes to this church and said, let them be damned to hell if they had one more thing, anything else to Jesus alone. It's the strongest language Paul ever uses in the scripture, and he applies it now here to himself. I would be damned to hell if it could merit the salvation of my kinsmen. Does that blow your mind a little bit? I think it should. And I don't think Paul is just saying this off the cuff flippantly. I think Paul has spent more time than anyone else talking about the joy of union with Christ, what it's like to be joined to him. He's talked more than anyone else about what it's like to never be separated by anything, you or anything outside of you, from the love of Jesus Christ. So he is saying this with deep affections. Nothing could describe his love more, more clearly. Now, here's what we know. Paul knows that he can't. He knows that there isn't anything he could do to put himself in harm's way to merit their salvation. He knows that. But he is saying out loud, there's a way to express his love for them. If his damnation would give them their salvation, he'd be willing to do it. Now, when's the last time you ever thought anything like that? Never crossed my mind. Um, James Boyce suggests that what Paul has in mind here is an Old Testament illustration, one of which... If, if the people reading this reflected on it, they would know how sincere he is about how he feels. And, he, and James suggests that they're, uh, he's using the illustration of Moses, at least in his mind when he's writing this. Uh, Moses in chapter 32 of, of Exodus. So let me give you what you're probably very familiar with, the story, and then kind of get to you to maybe a section you're not familiar with. People of God... Leave, leave slavery in Egypt. They're in the desert being led by God to Mount Sinai where Moses is going to go up on the mountain and receive the law from God. Everybody good so far? Okay, so Moses is up on the mountain. Hours turn into days. Days turn into weeks. The people of God grow frustrated, impatient, and they turn to Aaron and say, Aaron, you know what? This isn't working out so good. In spite of us seeing all that God's done to deliver us, we want you to make for us a God that we can worship, one that doesn't disappear from time to time. So Aaron collects gold from the people and he fashions a golden calf. And the text tells us the people start dancing around and worshiping. And part of their lyric in their worship is, this is the God who freed us from slavery to Egypt. Okay? Now it's totally ironic that when Moses is up on the mountain having God tell him what he thinks, what God is telling him is this, 
I am the God who led my people out of Egypt. Have no other gods but me. And do not carve yourself a graven image whatsoever. Don't make an image. The very moment that God is telling um, Moses that truth, the people of God are breaking it, all of it. God interrupts their conversation. He says, Moses, they've blown it. And he says this. These are God's words. I've seen this people. They're stiff-necked. Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger can burn hot against them and I can consume them and I'll start over with you. It's intense right now. And Moses, being the leader of the people and loving his people, just like Paul's described his love for his people, he intercedes for the people and he asks two questions of God. Wait a minute, God, what are the Egyptians going to say if you don't rescue them? They're going to say you just led them out in the wilderness to die. And what are they going to say if your people are no more when you made all these promises about making your, your people a great nation? You can't, you can't go back on these things. The text tells us that God withheld his judgment for a time and sends Moses down to deal with the people the best that he knew how. And so Moses does. Moses takes this golden calf and he burns it in a hot fire, crushes it up and puts it in the water and makes all the people drink their God. That's one. Second thing he does is he takes Aaron and stands him up in front of all the people and rebukes him publicly. And the third thing he does is he sends the Levite priests into the, into the people to go after everyone who was part of the rebellion that made them worship a false god and killed them all, 3,000-ish people. That's all, that's all Moses could do. That's all he could bring to the sin of the people. That's, that's, that's the, as far as he's concerned... From a human standpoint, Moses dealt with a sin, but Moses knew something far greater. He knew that up on the mountain was waiting a wrathful God who wasn't just going to be okay with drinking gold and killing a couple of rebellious people. God was furious, rightfully furious, full of wrath towards sin. And my guess, and I'm only speculating here, but I, I think it's close, I think that Moses had an incredibly sleepless night. just pondering, oh, what's he going to do? Last time I saw him, he wanted to consume everything. What's, what's he going to do? Maybe, maybe some time passed for Moses when an illustration popped in his mind. Maybe he went immediately to the Passover. Maybe he thought of, um, or the blood sacrifices rather, of the time when uh, an innocent blood would be shed for the uh, redemption of a, of a group. And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps God would do it again. So, here's what happens. In Exodus 32, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there with me. One short little section. We're going to pick it up in verse 30. Next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Listen to this statement. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. Do you you see that line in your text, that kind of break in sentence there? There are writers and theologians who suggest that that, uh, Moses couldn't finish his sentence. He was talking to God about recognizing their sin, and he is so moved by what God is going to do to the sin. He is so brokenhearted for his people, he gets choked up. He stops talking. He can't finish his thought. 
He picks it up again and says, but, but if not, please blot me out of your book. It's the same heartbeat as Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he is referring to his people who don't get the Redeemer Messiah. One writer said it this way, that little section where Moses is writing, he says, it was a strangled cry, a sob welling up from the heart of a man who's asking to be sent to hell if his condemnation would mean salvation for the people that he loved. I don't know anything that sounds more like somebody loves someone than that. But here's what we know. Moses couldn't save himself, let alone his people. Moses was a murderer. And Paul's not suggesting that somehow his his damnation in hell would somehow bring redemption to people. He knows that can't happen either because he as well is a sinner. There is only one Passover sacrifice. There is only one God's Messiah. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. In fact, I didn't read it, but go back to chapter 9, verse 5. Did you notice that when Paul was listing all the advantages to the Jewish people, there was one last advantage at the end of verse 5 that he brings up? Verse 5, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So let me paraphrase. God has blessed you, Israel, so much. He's adopted you as his people. He's decided to work through you and reveal himself to the world through you. He's decided to bring the Messiah through you and give you the promises and the law and teach you about worship and holiness and sin. God has taught, taught you those things in this relationship. But the greatest thing of all that God has given you, he's given him, himself to you as a Messiah, as a Redeemer. And that really is just the so what of this passage, Right? of all of this example of Paul's love and the advantages of Israel that you see him mentioning here, it's this so what, that Christ has to be an extraordinary redeemer, has to be to make this possible. For, for instance, there is only one thing that can explain that kind of radical love. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news that I'm a sinner equally offending a, a holy God and that I deserve nothing. And so I can see people through the lens of their blindness and know they need hope. They need help. They need God to intervene on their behalf. And so my heart can be broken. It's the only thing you can explain love for your enemies to somehow declare that you'd be willing to be damned. The gospel can affect somebody like that. Jesus can. So let me ask you a question. Do you anguish over those you don't, that don't know Christ? People that walk around crushed by their sin, do you anguish like that? I was reading this story on uh, Thursday, and I couldn't help. I just started crying. I just couldn't help. Someone felt that way about me. And God's Redeemer came after me. People dying all around me, and I just don't even look up. So... Spurgeon said it this way, let it convict you. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the, in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. So what about you? Do you anguish over the lost? Only, only the gospel can make our hearts break like that. And, and there is one more thing to say here. It's obvious. Advantages get you nowhere. If there wasn't that last little part of that sentence at the end of verse 5, we're screwed. 
Advantages get you nowhere. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your church you go to. I don't care if you think you know a bunch of stuff. Are you sent to things? I don't care if your life is moral. I don't, I don't care at all if you somehow think that you have a good upbringing or that you're even sincere. None of it gets you anywhere. Every one of us are sinners separated by our sin from a holy God who will, in his wrath, rightfully deal with our sin. Our only hope is Jesus. That's the only thing we got. So if you're sitting here today thinking, oh, I've got a stack of good, pretty good things going for me too, condemn them. Only praise Jesus for what you have. And if you're sitting here thinking that somehow maybe what you had in your past merited any favor, then listen to this passage, chapter 10. Just listen to this, Romans. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's it say? You will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One Lord, one standard, one Redeemer, one Messiah. Always has been, always will be. Always will be. Church, we've got one person to celebrate. His name is Jesus. Amen? Every week we get together, we take two common elements, a piece of bread and a cup, to remind ourselves of that very truth. There isn't any other way. There's no other hope. Jesus, when he was with his disciples, he took that loaf of bread, he broke it. So this represents what I have to do to make a way for you to know God. You're, you have to be broken, and you're broken through my brokenness. I have to have my life shed for you. So here's what we know. That's a truth. He picks up the cup after supper, so this represents the new deal, the new covenant in my blood, where once you thought you could work your way to your problem, here is grace alone. Nothing else added. That's what we do every week when we take these elements, remind ourselves of that truth. Jesus was broken for us, and there's a new deal. We walk and live only in God's beautiful grace. Amen. Let's pray together. It's a men's service. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that the, the work that he accomplished on the cross really is true and right and full and applies to us by faith. And that truth means that nothing at all can separate us from your love. Not anything outside of us, and not even any wanderings within us. God, you hold on to your people. And so, God, we, uh, we say we love you this morning. We celebrate what Jesus accomplished on our behalf for his life and for his death and for his resurrection. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.